Well, if you have your Bibles, <clears throat> I'd encourage you to get those out and turn with me to uh, Acts. While you're doing that, if you can multitask and get your core guide out, there's a place on the front for you to take some notes, devotionals on the inside to help get you through the week, things maybe to talk about uh, with your core groups, and then the discussion guide on, on the back to lead your groups uh, through a study on, on Acts chapter 3. Uh, there are, <clears throat> there's really two parts to this text. So there's, there's, um, there's really two sermons that I'm going to preach to you today. Um, don't worry, I, I just got the weather forecast. There's a blizzard coming, so I, th- I think we have all day. If I, if I need to come up with a third one, I'm pretty sure I could do that on the fly. But there, there, Acts chapter 3 is split into uh, two sections. They're both related, but they're uh, quite different uh, in some regard. There's, there's a matter of a healing miracle. And there is a matter of Peter seeing an opportunity to share with the crowd that has gathered in amazement and wonder at the miracle. So I want to start by looking at the first part. Would that be okay? And that's in uh, verses 1 through 10. So I know you just settled in and got comfortable, seated, but I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the authority of the word of the Lord This is Acts chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 10. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. At three in the afternoon, now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And that's the first part of the story. Now, I'm, as I have been reading this, you can be seated. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> you don't have to stand for the, the whole thing. Uh, if you go backwards just a few verses in our text, the end of chapter 2, 
The, the, verse number 43 says, everyone was filled with awe at the many, many, numerically, multiple, right? Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. So of all of the many wonders and signs of the apostles, I find it interesting that Luke chooses this particular story to follow the message that he had just shared with us in chapter 2. Chapter 2, is a, we took three weeks on chapter 2. It's a powerful chapter in Acts. We have the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Powerful arrival of the Holy Spirit. Filled the disciples. Last week we talked about the new Spirit-filled community that formed around these first followers of Jesus. And if you remember the, the summary at the end of Acts chapter 2 paints this, it, it's kind of a very cozy little picture of this fellowship of believers that has, has gathered, they've gathered for teaching and for fellowship, for celebrating the Lord's Supper and eating many meals together and meeting with each other every day and praying for one another. They, they served one another so well, in fact, we are told that they were, and remember, this is church people, okay? We're told that they were of one mind and heart and held all things in common. Wow! How do you, that sounds like the perfect church to me, doesn't it? So why does Luke follow that picture of this fellowship with this story? The obvious focal point of what we just read is, is far and away the, the miracle. Would you agree? It is amazing. And it is a... It's a wonderful testimony to the power of God let loose in this world and, and through his followers. But I think Luke is pointing our attention beyond the miracle healing. I think after just describing a cozy little fellowship of believers he recognized maybe that it would be easy to be tempted to view the church as a safe little bubble where we come together and we're very inwardly focused, we're protected from the world. He knew this temptation could potentially cause these believers to get wrapped up in caring for each other and neglect the responsibilities that Jesus had left with them to be witnesses and to make disciples. I think as I read this over and over again that Luke is, he's trying to show us another miracle that happened in the story. It was a miracle of, it was a miracle of the eye is the miracle of the gift of sight. 
these spirit-filled believers had been gifted with gospel spectacles, a new set of lenses by which to view the world, lenses that would allow them to see people as Jesus saw people, allow them to perceive how God looks upon all of his creation. If you read this passage, even just in the verses that we read, 1 through 10, there are six references to sight just in those verses. This is a story about seeing. If Peter and John hadn't seen the man at the beautiful gate, there wouldn't have been a miracle. Let me ask you maybe a couple questions to ponder. How do you feel, honestly now, how do you feel when you pull up to an intersection around town and you're confronted with somebody who is asking for money, standing on the corner. It's kind of awkward sometimes, isn't it? I remember a couple of times, maybe I won't put these in the awkward category, but they're, they're certainly attention getters. I sold office equipment in and around Chicagoland for quite some time, and when I was downtown Chicago, there were a couple intersections. The, the first time it kind of, it, it startled me a little bit. I pulled up to the intersection, the light had turned red, come to a stop, and I mean, the, the car comes to a halt, and, and all of a sudden, my windshield is being sprayed. There's, there's one guy who's spraying my windshield and one guy who's got a squeegee. This was their Instead of holding a cardboard sign, they washed your windows as a way to, to earn money. The first time, it startled me so much, I didn't, see the, I didn't see the person squirting, and so I just saw liquid hit my windshield, and I put my windshield wiper on. <laughs> Whoops, and the guy just looked at me like, what are you doing? I'm like, I didn't know. But they were there every time I went through that intersection. And if the light turned red, you're getting a window wash. <laughs> then there was a guy in, over in Spokane area. He was at the same intersection every day. He had a different approach. He didn't have the, the sad cardboard signs that you sometimes read to pull on your heartstrings. He, he went the opposite way. He had a sign on a stick, and it just had in big capital letters, smile, exclamation point. And he had a wonderful smile. And he'd dance around the corner, and if you stopped at that corner, he's coming by your windshield, and he's smile. And he'd look at you, and, and you could see people in other cars that are, but if he got your attention, he smile. And then he'd flip his sign around, and on the other side, it says, you know you want to. <laughs> Those are kind of creative ways, if you ask me, but sometimes it's just awkward. Uh, let me ask you another question. 
What is your typical response? Where, maybe if I clarify that a little bit, what is your response? Where do your eyes go? Do you consciously make eye contact with people? Or do you busy yourself with cleaning the non-existent dust on all the dials on your dashboard? You know, just come on, light, turn. If you really pay attention, the people who have the real need oftentimes don't make eye contact either. Because there's a bit of shame in being relegated to standing on a corner, holding a sign, begging for money, when that's your, potentially your only way to eat that day. So oftentimes you won't get a glance in the first place. But where do your eyes go? Peter and John throw down a challenge to us in this story. They make eye contact with this man. You know, there's something very beautiful about the way this story plays out. Peter and John are going to the temple, and they come across this uh, crippled man who has been like this since birth. I think in later parts of Acts, we learn that he is about 40 years old, if I remember correctly. He's been at this for a while. He's at the gate. Somebody, they, he's crippled enough that he has to be carried there to earn his existence. Alms for the poor. Alms for the poor. He's there every day asking for the people's leftovers. Hey, for many passers-by, he, he probably had just become part of the scenery. Oh, yeah. So-and-so's over there today again. Overlooked, scorned. He probably felt the shame of his condition with each person who walked by, ignoring him totally. He was... Did you notice that he's sitting outside the temple? Outside the temple. Because of his condition, he wasn't allowed to go any further. He could get to the door of the church, but he wasn't allowed in. Let that sink in for, for just a moment. You, you can come this far, but you're not healthy enough, you're not clean enough to proceed in with us into worshiping God. Is this how we view church? Is this maybe how sometimes we act in our own lives? There's certain people 
who maybe we let get all the way to our front door, but for whatever reason, we don't invite them to come in any further. The story takes a significant change. When Peter says, Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Look at me. Look, look at me. And this man, he looks up and into their eyes. And Peter begins to speak to him as another human being. See, eye contact is so powerful. When we make eye contact with one another, we become human to each other. Peter, Peter dignified this man by asking him to make eye contact. Look at us. And he looked up. I think it's probably something that he had watched Jesus do over and over and over again when he was walking around in ministry together with him. But it wasn't something that he was able to do himself until he was filled with the Holy Spirit and had been given the miracle of sight when he had been fitted by the Holy Spirit with the gospel spectacles to see people, Jesus walked around making eye contact with folks. We read about him when he would stand and he would look out at the masses and he would have compassion on them. And the word for compassion is like moved in his gut because he saw the people. And there's that time where the, the woman who had been bleeding for a dozen years nervously makes her way through the crowd. If, if only I just touched the hem of Jesus' garment, maybe I could be healed. So she gets her way all the way through the crowd and touches his garment, and Jesus immediately knows the power has gone out of him, and he stops. And he asks his disciples, who, who touched me? Who touched me? If I were a disciple, I would be like, Jesus, everybody touched you. We're in a, a mass of people. And Jesus said, no. And he wouldn't move on until he searched through that crowd and made eye contact with the woman. Peter was witness to things like this, and so they're coming into the gate, and he sees the man over here, and he says, hey, look at us. See, half the battle in serving and witnessing is, I think, looking beyond ourselves and looking intently into the eyes of those who are in front of us. Um, be willing to see people as God would see them. Now, th this man, when Peter acknowledges him, probably thinks that they're about to give him some money. And when Peter says, well, I don't have any silver or gold, you, what do you think ran through that guy's mind? You pious cheapskate. I don't know. 
I bet that had happened before. I, well, I don't have anything for you. Peter doesn't stop there with, I don't have any silver or gold. I, I don't have exactly what you are asking for, but I'll give you what I do have. And he reaches out, and he grabs the man's arm, and he lifts him up. He says, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. There is power in the name of Jesus. And instantly, the guy can walk, which is a miracle. How long does it take you to teach your infants how to walk? It takes a while, doesn't it? Because their legs have to strengthen, they have to learn something called balance. As a 40-year-old, if you have never walked, how long do you think it would take to develop strength in your legs to support yourself? How long do you think it would take before you got the whole balance thing down? But no, we are told that he doesn't just stand up, but he jumps to his feet, leaping and dancing and praising God, and they all go into the temple. That is a miracle. For the first time in his life, he is now allowed to go into the temple. So not only does this man have a physical healing, but he is restored to the community. He is now one of everybody allowed to proceed in and participate in the worship of God. Instead of getting a handout, oh yeah, here's a little coin here and here's some alms. Instead of getting a handout, he got the hand up. If you ask me, I think this story is simply shocking. We see the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in, in a couple of ways. Um, the healing part, it's amazing, but I'm not really surprised by it because we've read a whole bunch of Gospels that has Jesus healing people. He gave the disciples the power to do such things in his ministry, sent them out, go do these things. They're now filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke has already told us that they've done many signs and wonders, so the, the healing part for me isn't, it's not all that surprising. It's amazing, absolutely. But what's surprising, maybe mostly to me, is the transformation that we see in Peter and the rest of the disciples here. I mean, remember who we're talking about. The disciples the ones who oftentimes didn't fully grasp what Jesus was up to in his ministry. I mean, just, you can easily think back, one of the big miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. We've probably all heard that one a couple times. Jesus is out preaching, teaching the people on the hill, and it's getting late in the day. I don't know, maybe he's on Sermon 4 or 5. I don't know. The disciples, they notice the rumble in their stomach first, probably. Hmm. And they look at their, their Apple watches. <laughs> hey, uh, hey, Jesus. Probably wrap it up. Wrap it up. We got to get, I mean, we're hungry. 
And these people are probably really hungry too. You've been preaching to them all day long. And Jesus says, well, how about you feed them? (laughs) And they say, well, um, we don't have enough money for that, Jesus. What, What do you want us to do? Go buy bread for everybody? They're thinking with what you would call a mindset of scarcity. They're looking at a crowd of at least 5,000 people. They look in their little purse and they see a few coins and they're like, no, no way, Jesus. It's, it's certainly not in the budget today. We, we can't feed these people. And Jesus has already said, well, why don't you feed them? Ah, we can't do it. We don't have enough. I haven't been, I haven't studied the Bible long enough to share my faith. Uh, you know, all the sorts of excuses that we sometimes give ourselves a pass by sharing our faith or serving other people is we don't have the right tools yet. So we got to wait for some more time to go by before we feel like we're comfortable with what Jesus has blessed us with before we'll put it into action. And Jesus says, you feed him. No, Jesus, we don't have enough. And Jesus says, what do you have? Go and see. Go and see. So they scurry about the hillside in and amongst these 5,000 people, and they find a boy, right, who has five loaves of bread and a couple fish, and they bring it back. Hey, Jesus, this is all we could find. This is not going to feed a whole bunch of people. And Jesus said, that's enough. And he works a miracle. See, one of the miracles is that Jesus fed the whole crowd. The other of, of the miracles that will begin to come to fruition throughout the rest of the story is that Jesus taught them a lesson. Don't take on a mindset of scarcity thinking that you're not qualified or you don't have enough to be faithful to me in any given moment. Take on the mindset of abundance. What I have been generous and blessed you with is more than enough more than enough. It's more than enough when you put it in my hands and it works through me. You can be faithful to me in each and every moment simply with what you already have. Oh, church, can we move from the mindset of scarcity, thinking that we don't have enough of whatever to do what Jesus wants us to do? And can we move to a mindset of abundance that what Jesus has blessed us with is way more than enough when we put it in his hands, trusting that with, with what we have in his hands is more than enough to be faithful to what he wants us to do in this church and in this community. See, the Holy Spirit has transformed the disciples' thinking here. They now can see the need around them. They now, they, they now see and understand that they are only asked to give what they already have. Jesus doesn't ask you to give more than what you have. He asks you to give what you have. Peter said, I can't do this. I don't, I don't have any money, 
but he doesn't use that as an excuse to do nothing and pass by the guy. The Holy Spirit has transformed his thinking from scarcity to abundance, and he says, I will give you what I have. And right now, the only thing I have is the powerful name of Jesus. Get up and walk. Hmm. I think God, he, he won't ask you to do anything other than what you can do, but he will ask you to do just that. I think he wants us to see one another, to look deep into each other's eyes. You may not have exactly what the person is looking for, but God asks us to live with our hands open, holding loosely to the things that he has blessed us with. He's asking us to work on cultivating a spirit of generosity, a generosity that is modeled after his own generosity to us, that he would go to such a great length to send his one and only son to die on the cross so that we might be forgiven of our sins. You might not know how to respond in every circumstance, but if you're walking in step and listening for the Holy Spirit, you'll know what to do in the moment. See, our faith, our faith isn't to be wrapped up in the cozy little picture of the fellowship of believers that Luke described at the end of chapter 2. That's a huge part of it. Huge part of it. But it's, that picture isn't given to us so that we would neglect going and doing like Jesus commanded us to do. Our faith is something that ought to be put to use. We're saved for a purpose, to go and serve and to share with others. Uh, we, have, we have a bunch of scouts here this morning. And they meet in this building uh, Monday nights and Thursday nights. And they gather and they uh, go over things that are teaching them how to be leaders and servants in, in our community. Some of it is book learning, but none of, none, none of the book learning is intended just for personal use. All of what the scouts learn is part of a process of developing these young boys into men who will be conscientious leaders who, when they leave their meetings, when they graduate out of scouts and they go out into the world, they will have been trained to look for need all around them, and they will have been given tools to help them respond to situations where, where people have need, even if it's an inconvenience to them personally. And that's the Christian story, folks. We're to go and serve and share the story of Jesus and how it has changed our lives. Did you notice how this man became part of the community where he was excluded? He's now a full participant 
That's the power that we have to share with, with others. When, when you reach out with the name of Jesus, people's lives can be changed. You, you may not change the whole world. But you can certainly be a participant in changing the whole world for someone. Well, that's sermon number one. There's a matter of um, the second part of the story, which begins in verse 11 of chapter 3. And I'm not going to read that entire, uh, the rest of chapter 3, but I I do want to highlight a few things for you. People came running to see what was going on. Peter and John have just healed a guy who's been at the gate beautiful for a long time. And now he's jumping and praising God, and people are like, isn't that the guy who's, that's his mat right there, but he's not on it. The scenery has changed. What is going on? And so the buzz goes out through the crowd. Us human creatures are like that. If something big is going down or something exciting is happening, we are drawn to that. Are we not? We are. They are amazed. Peter seizes the opportunity. He, he sniffs this one out. It's, well, it's kind of obvious. Perfect opportunity to preach to the crowd. And he wanted to make sure that the crowd understood how and why this miracle took place. Their tendency might have been to think that the power of the healing was found in Peter. Like, what did, what did he say? Did he, did he have some magical incantation? Did he he ask for the guy to give him a big donation and then touch his TV? What what happened? We want to know how this guy was healed. And Peter senses that they have all of these questions going through their mind. This is not something that's normal. And he, he directs their focus to the powerful name of Jesus. It's not what we did It's all done in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He wants to make sure that credit is given to the proper source of the healing. This miracle opened the door then for him to share the good news and the saving grace and forgiveness that was available in in Jesus. Now, as you read through verses 11 through 26, you will see that Peter levels some pretty pointed indictments on the crowd. He doesn't hold anything back. But you you need to remember a couple things. One, remember that Peter is a Jew. Peter's a Jew. He's talking to a Jewish crowd who has gathered at the temple about what happened to Jesus who was also a Jew. 
So Peter is clearly identifying himself, I am one of you. We are together in this. He's telling them their common story. He's trying to persuade them using their own scripture and their own tradition. And he accuses them of abandoning Jesus to the Romans to be crucified. He reminds them that they rejected the author of life. But he empathizes with them because he's done the same thing. The Greek word in our story that is used for the word rejection is the same word that is used of Peter's own denial of Jesus. He knows what it means to turn his back on the Lord. He knows what it means to reject Jesus. But he also knows the grace and mercy that Jesus extended to him to restore the relationship. Peter is a a fine example of one who has experienced the grace of Jesus, and he's pleading with them to change their minds about Jesus and accept the forgiveness that he offers. I want to focus your attention on verses 19 and 20. Spend a few minutes there. Here's what Peter is trying to persuade the crowd to do. He says, repent then. Turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He urges them to repent. To to turn to God. Now, Now, the literal understanding of repent is to simply turn around and go the other direction. So he says, repent of what you've done. Turn around and start taking steps towards God. Admit you were wrong about Jesus. Admit you haven't followed God's righteous law in the way that he wants you to. That sounds really simple, doesn't it? It it is. It is really simple. But it's maybe one of the more difficult things that we might have to do. Uh, I take a quick poll. How many of you like to admit when you're wrong? (laughs) No, we don't like to do it. It's sometimes painful, isn't it? Admitting error Admitting that we have been going down a course, maybe it's in an argument that we have with, a, with somebody close to us, and at some point we figure out we're dead wrong, but sometimes we're so locked in the heat of the moment that we can't say, you know what, I'm sorry, I was wrong. So our resolve crystallizes, and we persevere forward in our error because of our pride. Maybe I'm only talking to myself. <laughs> and Peter says, why don't, why don't you go ahead and admit 
that you were wrong about Jesus Christ. You witnessed all the signs and wonders. I've spelled out who he is using your own scripture and tradition. He was crucified, dead, and buried, and God vindicated him by raising him to new life. He was raised from the dead. What more do you need as proof that he is God's Messiah? Why don't you repent, admit that you were wrong about Jesus, and turn and go the other direction? Turn to God. Turn away from the way that you're living right now. Back out of the argument. It's okay. It will pass. Take steps towards him. Why? Verse 19 says, Because God will wipe away your sins. He, he will remove them from you. He will not hold your sin against you any longer. Scriptures say he will move them as far as the east is from the west. That's how far God removes your sin from you. You can be forgiven for anything. It's never, ever, ever too late. No one, once in a while I'll hear somebody say, oh, you don't know what I've done. I'm, I think I'm just too far gone. You're never too far gone. You are never outside the grace of Jesus Christ. You can be forgiven. God will wipe the slate clean. If you're the whiteboard of your heart, if it is solid black, God will wipe the whiteboard of your heart totally clean. And the end of verse 19 might be one of the most comforting lines in this whole passage. Peter says, so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Do you need refreshing? Do you need, do you need refreshing? Is your soul weary right now? Are you worn out? Do you wonder how you're going to make it from day to day? Peter looks at this crowd that's gathered in amazement and wonder, and he sees them struggling. He sees them laboring under the weight of the law. He sees them wandering out around lost without a shepherd. He sees them living in fear. He sees all of the agony in them, and deep down he knows there's another way. He knows there's a better way. He knows there's a life-saving way. He knows there's a life-refreshing way to live, and that way is Jesus. Peter knows because he has experienced it himself in the darkest days of depression after rejecting and denying Jesus. He was refreshed. He was forgiven. He was restored. And he knows that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he knows the Lord will refresh their spirit and give them a new hope and reason for pressing forward. I'm reminded of the promise that was 
Jesus' own words in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I, I will give you rest. Take, take my yoke upon you. Learn, learn from me. For I am I'm gentle. And I'm, I'm humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Jesus himself promises all those who are worn out and downtrodden and in agony and weary, he promises rest and refreshment. And the way that that happens is to come to him in worship. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. There's an action in that that we have to take steps towards him. The promise is refreshment. The promise is a new slate. The promise is forgiveness of sins, but it all starts with the repentance and the coming to Jesus. Spend some time in God's presence. In verse 20, Peter says that this is really just a foretaste of what is to come when Jesus himself returns and makes all things new. That there will be a recreation, and the recreation began when Jesus rose from the dead, and one day will be finally completed when he comes back. So what this spirit-filled community of believers recognized was that this new creation that they're learning about had begun in their own lives. They recognized that they themselves were already experiencing signs of this, this new life, that God had forgiven them, and, and they were set free from the guilt and the shame of, of their sin, and they were, they were filled with the Holy Spirit who empowered them to live life in a new direction. The same Holy Spirit opened their eyes fitted them with the gospel spectacle so that they could see the brokenness around them. They could see the pain of the world. They could see the need and that was ever-present all around them. And they understood what God had done to forgive them and the refreshment that he brought them. And they understood and they were learning that this could be shared with other people. And this is what compelled them to love one another. This is what sent them out into the world to be agents of reconciliation between God and humanity. And so I would say this morning, I would want to remind you that the forgiveness that we're talking about that Peter was coaxing and urging and pleading with this gathered group of people, this, the forgiveness that he told them about, this wiping of the slate clean and, and the refreshment, it's available to you. It's available to you. It's not just 
the story that we read about that happened to some people a long time ago. But it's something that is ever-present. It is always available. There is new life in Christ. So repent. Admit you were wrong. Admit your sin before God. And when you turn to him, he will forgive you, and he will wipe away your sin, and he will refresh you, and he will fill you with his Holy Spirit. The people of God said, amen, amen. I want to pray with you, and our worship team is going to come back and, and lead us in a closing song. If you would stand with me. To my right and to my left, there are some blue bench-looking things. If you're not familiar with the terminology of uh, the church, they're called altars. They're wonderful places to, to come and pray about anything. Maybe it's something that moved you in, in our worship this morning and what was shared from God's Word. Maybe it's a struggle that you have at home or a physical ailment. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's, maybe it's somebody else. You just need to come and lift before the Father. There's nothing magical about the altars, but I want to tell you it is a special place to pray, to just lay yourself open before the Lord. Sometimes, sometimes we need the intentionality of moving. Because it's times where we physically move our body forward and kneel before the Lord that mark high points in our faith. Sometimes we don't know where else to turn, but I promise you that when you come and you kneel before the Lord, He will begin that refreshing work in your soul. So whether I specifically say you can come and pray at these places, they're always, always open. And maybe this morning would be one of those times that you just need to come and bow your knee before the Lord. Maybe it's telling him I was wrong. If that's you, if you need to come forward, you can do so while I pray, while we sing. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we love you so much. we thank you for the ways that you have been faithful to us. And we thank you for the ways that you stir our hearts. Lord, would you fill us with your spirit and fit us with these gospel spectacles. Might we become a church that is 
constantly looking out, looking intently into eyes of those around us. May we see and sense the need. And help us to operate out of the mindset of abundance. Lord, I confess that too often we look through the lens of scarcity and we tend to clutch and grab and cling to the things that we have because we're afraid of losing them. And if we, we're afraid that if we give them away that we might not have enough for ourselves. Forgive us, Father, when we do that. Would you help us to understand that things that you have been generous to bless us with, when we hand those things to you, they're more than enough in your capable hands to accomplish everything that you have laid out for us to do. So help us loosen our grip. Help us to trust that by releasing back to you what, what we have will impact this world greatly. And Lord, I thank you for the message that Peter shared. He reminded all the people there that they were sinners before God, that they had rejected you, that they had been participants in killing Jesus, putting him on the cross. But that when we repent of that, when we admit we are wrong, when we acknowledge that there's sin in our lives and we ask you for forgiveness and we turn and we take steps towards you, we thank you that you have promised us forgiveness. We thank you that you wipe the slate clean for us, that you give us an opportunity from that very moment to live a new life going forward. And when we wrestle with guilt and doubt and pain, when the world closes in and there's just stuff that is wearing us out, that you promise us refreshment. But you beckon us. You say, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Lord, we turn to you individually, collectively as a church. We are taking steps towards you and we are we're banking on the promise that you will refresh us, that you will restore us, that you will give us rest. And you'll give us everything that we need to move out from this place and into the world to be your light, to be your witnesses. Jesus, we love you so much. And it's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.